Radio listeners, this is Gunnar Monson, your host tonight for Monster X Radio. I want to remind everybody that's out there listening to go to our website, www.monsterxradio.com, and check out our new Monster exclusive content. you got to join to see it, but a lot of good, cool stuff in there. So with me tonight is Kyle Gibson, Montrefreitas, and Todd and Diane Neese. Todd, are you there? Hello. I am. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, we're excited to have you. A few weeks ago, Kyle and Montra were actually up, snowmobiling up in Washington State, and came across something interesting, which they took some photographs of. And, and the reason I originally reached out to you, Todd, because we happened to have lunch shortly thereafter, and uh, you shared some uh, pictures with me. And I'll let Kyle and Mantra tell the story of how what what happened and what they were doing and, and how those came about. It's always cool to get the context of any piece of, of evidence when it comes to Bigfoot research. Uh, you know, any single piece of evidence without the context is, is almost worthless, you know, unless, unless you have a body. Um, I guess that would be the exception. Kyle and Mantra, are you there? Yep. Yeah, we're here. All right. Well, thanks for joining me tonight on Monster X. Can uh, Kyle, let's start with you. Can you tell the Monster X uh, radio audience what your background is and and how you got into Bigfoot research? Well, I'm, I come from a family of outdoors people. We do a lot of hunting and fishing. We grew up hunting and fishing, and um, spending most of our time outside in the mountains. My grandfather was an avid tracker and hunter and fishermen and most of my family are all in the in the game department you know fishing and hunting and um so i grew up around just being outside spending a lot of time in the woods in the pacific northwest all over the state um when i was younger at about 11 years old i had my first sighting in the blue mountains when i was bow hunting and after that first sighting i was very interested and kind of kept going back to I was so excited because, you know, this thing, these creatures are not supposed to be there. And then when you get a glimpse of something, you kind of go back and you're just like, well, all these people say that there's no such thing. And um, after that, it just kind of takes over and you just want to know more and more and more and you want to learn and understand what, you know, what these creatures are. Ever since then, I've been just kind of, 
I, I continued my hunting and I continued my fishing and spending a lot of time outside. But every time I go out hunting or fishing, not only was I hunting or fishing, I was always checking the surroundings, looking for footprints, following up, talking to people, talking to other hunters, talking to um, some of the old timers that were, that were trappers, trackers, and asking them, hey, have you ever had an experience like this? Where did you have an experience like this? And, you know, just kind of like taking my situation and what I saw and what other people have seen and just kind of putting it together. And the more you talk to people, the more interesting it gets. You start start seeing a pattern here that, hey, you know, you're not the only one that, that has seen one of these. Ever since then, it just kind of became an addiction. And after that, I was pretty much just going out every – I mean, I was going out two, three days a week at least, every week. I'd make sure that I was off before Friday, and I was in the mountains until Monday. So that's how it started with me. Well, it's always interesting to me people's background stories because there's certain people that this encounter changes their life in a way that it becomes a pursuit. You know, when people have, I call it the confirmation experience, um, they go from are they to what are they. You know, it's looking, now that, these things are out there, and and they've been eluding man all this this time to a great degree. We haven't been able to prove they exist, but obviously people have experiences with them. It's just fascinating, and and some people do have you know your mindset that like Todd, who's at a, at a sighting, it, it becomes a big part of their lives. And other people just want you know it's like la la la. I don't I did not see Bigfoot. Why do you think that there's different approaches for people? I mean what affects some people so dramatically in the other way. Like there's people that won't go back in the woods after they've had an encounter. Well, I think it just depends on what kind of person you really are because, you know, fear can do a lot of things to people. You know, if you've been in those situations, fear can take over and you've got to be really careful. Even when you're in the woods and you're hunting and you hear things, you know, just because you hear something doesn't mean, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of different animals out there. There's, you know, bear, elk, cougar, all those different animals, they all have different agendas. You know, they, they come, they feed at certain times. They go to the river at certain times. They, they migrate at certain times. They, they follow the food chain. I think a lot of people, maybe some of those people that do that, maybe they saw something, but they're not sure what they saw. And I always tell people it's like this. It's like driving down the freeway and you're in rush hour and three of your buddies from kindergarten that you've known for over 20 years are four feet away from you in another car and they're sitting there looking at you, but you've got an agenda and you're going to work and you're just oblivious of what's going on all around you. You drive right by all your friends. It's, it's kind of the same thing. So Montra, let's, let's get a little bit of background on your interest in Bigfoot and any experience that you've had. Okay. Actually, let me preface this by saying I have a cough, so forgive me for, like, hacking right in the middle of talking. So. Okay. <laughs> when I was um, right around 12 or 13 years old, I had um, I had a sighting out in the in the woods out in Tuolumne County in California um, of something. And I, I don't want to say it was a Sasquatch, but it was definitely something that was not a bear and it was not a person. But um, that absolutely terrified me when I was a kid and I didn't tell anybody about it until years and years later back in uh, 1999 
I was talked into contacting the BFRO by my oldest brother, Kevin, and and um, so I contacted them and, and put a report in saying, yeah, I had this experience when I was a kid, you know, blah, blah. And uh, I got a call back from um, Kathy Strain, who at that time I'd never met. Her and I got to talking. She was one of the investigators for the BFRO at the time. And um, her and I started going out together into the field and doing our own investigations. And uh, at that time, there weren't really a whole lot of women that were going out and doing that. There was just a handful, Diane, of course, and um, Bobby Short, and maybe just a few others that I, I don't know. They're just random. You know, they weren't out there all the time. But, but anyway, so at, at that time, it was really cool because there weren't that many women doing it. And it was kind of uh, um, interesting to compare the results that we would get with, with other groups, especially, you know, mostly men. So anyhow, that's kind of how it all started. And I became part of the BFRO and, and the for a few years and then dropped out and and um, Kathy and I went on to do a couple of uh, Bigfoot boot camp kind of training things, teaching people how to cast prints and how to look for evidence and and um, the chain of command, you know, when you do find some evidence, how to keep it pristine so that you're not actually contaminating it. You know, our opinions basically on everything, um, not that that's the, the end all by any means, but um, just what we had learned up until that point. And uh, anyway, from there, to the point I'm at now with Kyle and, and him and I, like he was saying, I mean, we, we go out and do field work at least, I mean, at, at the minimum, two times a week, if not more like three times a week, sometimes, you know, more than that. It's just depending on our time frames. But um, we're really trying to get as much time as we can out in the field to gather as much evidence as we can. And even when it's uncomfortably cold, like out in the snow, we're still going out and doing things. And it's, it's um it's really it's really been a lot of fun and and it's so nice to have somebody with this kind of experience too. I mean Kyle's knowledge base is is just vast. So because he knows all these areas out here, he knows you know more about these these creatures than most anybody I've ever met. So anyhow, so we've been working on the Columbia Sasquatch Facebook page and putting some stuff out there, which is where actually that that picture is right now. That we got. Well, let's talk about that. That's a good segue into what picture are we talking about? So <laughs> <laughs> there, you guys were out, and and at the time you were actually looking for for evidence. Is that correct? I mean, you were actually out hoping to find something. Right. It's an area. Um, we have a bunch of different areas that we that we frequent, um, and so we just in order to kind of keep them sort of semi to ourselves as far as where they are exactly. Um, we just call them different zones. Like that particular one was what, zone five? Zone yeah, two? Yeah. I don't remember which one. Yeah. I have to look it up and see. We've got so many now. It's hard to keep track. But but um, so <laughs> we were out there, and we had been there before and, and really got some good evidence before. We've, we've There's just some amazing stuff up there. I've, I'm being from California, and I'm a transplant here in Washington now um, where I live with Kyle, and I've the, just the difference in in the evidence factor is so huge. I mean, the, granted, there's some really good places in California, but up here, it's just intense. It's really different. It's very squatchy. It's extremely squatchy, and it's <laughs> <laughs> to steal a phrase. It's like it's like watching us on on testosterone. I mean, it's just it's just amped up about nine levels, you know. So. But, yeah, we've gotten some really good evidence of prior. So we went back up looking, you know, to kind of see what we could find that time. And 
Um, and yeah, we went out on a snowmobile and and um, we have kind of different methods of of trying to cover as much as we can at the same time. So, you know, when Kyle's Kyle, of course, is driving the snowmobile and I'm on the back and he's looking to the left, so I'm looking to the right. And then when he looks to the right, I look to the left. So we're kind of coordinating, um, you know, scanning as much as we can of the, of the woods and stuff and the tree lines as yeah, we're, we're going. We're looking for movement, you know, like, yeah. you know, a lot of times it'll be a deer or an elk. Sometimes it'll be um, coyotes, you know, different things. But if you, if you go slow enough, you know, we, we'll go slow and I'll take one side of the road and then she'll take the other side of the road. And if we see, if we see movement, when then we stop and we check it out and see what it is. Yeah. Talk so, about this specific incident. You guys were out snowmobiling and mm-hmm. and scanning the sides of the road. And, and what happened? You saw something made you stop. Right. Um, we were going along, and Kyle saw some movement over to the right, and so he stopped, and we backed up. And yep. And early, and just a little bit earlier, before we saw that one, we saw some movement, and we we both saw something similar about a mile before that. Mm-hmm. And it caught our eye, and we both looked at each other like, "Did you see that?" And she's like, "Yeah, I saw it. Did you see that?" But then. When we turned back to go look to see what that was, it wasn't there. Yeah, it was gone. And then we went down the road a little bit further, and that's when we I saw movement. And so I stopped the snowmobile, and I backed up, and I said, Monster, look at that. And she goes, oh, my gosh. And she, she grabbed her phone out and snapped off some pictures. And then we sat there for a bit, and she, she wanted to get off the snowmobile and go down there. But you're up on a road, and when you come over the bank – the snow is probably about about six feet, seven feet deep, and then there's a little stream that runs under that you can't see that's underneath the snow. <laughs> and right. I grabbed her. I said, "You're not going down that hill. You disappear. <laughs> Seriously, you will disappear in that snowbank. You will you'll just drop off." And I mean, even stopping up on the road, we got stuck three times. Well, well, the back of the snowmobile. Once you stop on that, because it's starting to melt, mm-hmm. the back end of the snowmobile would sink three feet three and a half feet, and then you got to lift the thing up without sitting on it and throttle it to get it out of the hole. Yeah, it's no fun digging out a snowmobile, let me tell you right now. Yeah. Thank God yeah. Kyle's strong enough to pull that thing out. And and it took me two hours a couple oh times. God. I mean, I was about, I was, I was running out of energy. I was to the point of where I was about ready to just get underneath it and let it drive it over the top of me. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. So, get our shoes and off. And, uh. so, so you guys stop, you, you back. You yep. saw something moving. You, you stopped and backed up and took some pictures. What? I mean, the context of the story is you guys are actually out looking for something. You you did and then you see something. You stop and and take pictures. What yep. What did you see in those pictures that that was interesting? Well, first we, it was the movement, and then what we saw was like wow factor because. You know, I've been doing this a long time, and you coming across life like hitting kind of like hitting a lottery. Honestly, I mean, it still is. Yeah, it's I mean, like hitting a lottery. I mean, at first I was like, "No way, this ain't happening." This in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, "No, this, no, no." You don't just go out there and look and get lucky like that. I mean, I've been doing this for years. Um, <laughs> And then I looked at Mantra, and she's like, oh, my gosh. And she's the one. She's she's already got the phone out snapping pictures before I could even. <laughs> I'm the Bigfoot popper. You know, uh, yeah, she is. <laughs> and, uh, and, then she's, and then we're both looking at each other like, God oh, dang, you know. And 
she wants to go down there after it. And I'm like, no, you ain't going to go down there because I'm not going to go dig you out when you disappear, you know. They're just the top of my head. Or, yeah. Yeah. Let alone what's going to happen if you actually get up to what what's you, you think yeah, is that, a, a, a big this is what, And This is the problem with that is you and I both know is that can go pr- – Bad. That can go bad a couple different ways, you know. Sure. Yeah, but you know, you know what though? If I didn't try to chase after it, I would always regret it. So, you know, you, that's, you get that's so pretty, pretty gutsy. I mean, you know, most most people when they think they see a bigfoot, that's not their first inclination. Is to hey, yeah, I think I'll most, run after it. I mean, that really is not. Gosh, get out of here! All right. Yeah. Well, you get so many opportunities, if if ever, you know. I mean, in, in your right. lifetime, and I have when I was a kid, and it scared me to death, and and now as an adult, if I, you know, when if and when I'm afforded another opportunity like that, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna jump on its back and grab some hair and DNA and run the hell out. Of there. <laughs> well, that's what I. And please don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> we, we we do not advise people to go out and and, and chase Bigfoot and grab their pull their hair. It's kind of like you know spitting into the wind or pulling on Superman's cape. So, uh, but, but the but the idea is, I mean that you know we we all that are out in and looking for Bigfoot and and I don't know Di- I I think Diane has had an counter too. Diana, is that correct? Have you am I only one on here that hasn't seen Bigfoot? I mean that's <laughs> No dear. Yeah, I have not seen one either. Okay, good. They, so phew, I'm not I, I don't feel so bad. But but the thing is, is we, You're not there's this, this Yeah, not yet. But uh the the thing is is that you never know, you know, you don't know how you're gonna react when something actually happens. You know, we have these ideas of well well I'll do this or that, but when when something actually happens, how do you actually react? And it, it sounded like you know there was you had given this thought some thought prior to this incident, and and had decided that if you ever saw one, you your instinct would be to pursue it, which is is unusual. Which is, but I guess that you know that's the best way to collect evidence is go to where the evidence is. So talk about what what you saw and then what showed up in these these photographs. Well, um, basically what the photograph shows is, is what we saw, which was it, it appears to be something that is um, tall, very yeah, very tall and hairy, and not not really trying to hide itself a hundred percent. Like a you know, it's not just just a tree peeker. You know, looking from behind the you know the big tree or anything it's actually kind of standing you can see it so um to me to me because i did see it move before i saw where it was to me um i think we caught it off guard and it was just like okay i gotta freeze up now and hopefully these people will just go by you know Kyle, can I ask you a quick question? So, uh, and I, I think Gunnar has the same question. This this movement that you saw, can you describe it? Was it was it moving with you? Was it moving away from you? Uh, did it look bipedal, quadrupedal? Can you describe that? Well, I was looking. So okay, so I was we were coming down towards going back, and so I was watching that side of the road. 
and I come around the bend, and I'm always watching, you know, for movement, and I saw a dark figure moving through the trees. At first, I thought maybe an elk could be a deer or something, because when you're moving along there and you see something move, usually whatever does that usually will stop. You know, just like an elk or a deer, a lot of times they're moving and they'll just come to a stop. Well, I saw this thing move out of the corner of my eye, and I saw that it was that it was big and it was dark, and that's when I was like, "Whoa!" I mean, I I I stopped the snowmobile, I put it in reverse, and I backed up. So, you know, just so the audience understands, these snowmobiles are uh, two-stroke gas oil mix, fairly loud machines. And this is what kind of gets me is that you can hear a snowmobile. If you were standing there where they were, you would hear a snowmobile from probably at least a quarter, if not, you know, eighth mile away or whatever. You know it's coming. Yep. And I find it interesting that rather than flee to get away from that sound, they stood their ground until you were right up on them. I think that's I think that's pretty I think that speaks a lot to perhaps their intelligence and by that I mean their inquisitiveness. Uh I'm sure it's not the first snowmobile they heard uh yeah. in their lives, but they the fact that they, you know, hung out and waited to see exactly who and what was making that, that noise tells me that they're, you know, to have that, that curiosity uh, overwhelm their fear factor, uh, that, to me, says a lot about their, you know, their intelligence. Very. Yeah. Yeah, and there's snowmobiles up there, I would say. I mean, Todd, you and Diane, of course, were up there with us after that, and, and you saw, too, that there's tracks. You know, people go up there. I'd say maybe there's got to be at least one snowmobile per day up there. I would I would think it's kind of a well traversed area, um, even though it kind of goes way out. But but so I would think they're probably used to hearing snowmobiles at this time of year. But not everybody is looking for them. So it I mean obviously it look and I had I've been had the good fortune to see the pictures. In fact, I got to see one on on a giant screen. And it's even more impressive when you're able to see it that big. It gets a little pixelated, but but I mean the first yep. there's there's some detail in in those pictures that I mean it, it looks like you're looking at what people describe as a bigfoot. I mean that obviously it's not the glamour shot that everybody hopes for, you know that they didn't pose and and uh, but but there's so so you watch this. You saw this movement. You saw the thing behind the tree, or and, and it's that's a fairly regularly reported behavior. Is that they'll right. they'll cover themselves. You know, they'll use the cover that's there. Um, I've heard stories of them. You know, being in brush and pulling branches down in front of them to try and conceal themselves to to some degree when somebody's um, looking at them. What? So you you look at it. You take some pictures. Then what? You know, mantra's going to take off after it. You say that's probably not a good idea. Well, right. Then what do you guys do? <laughs> I got real in. I mean, maybe you could just tie the rope around her and let her, you know, go for it. But <laughs> no, maybe next time. <laughs> now you, gotta, you realize I've been going up to that spot 
you know, we have a cabin not very far from there, but I've been going up to that spot for many, many, many years. And out of all those years, I've always came across those footprints up there. There's, you know, there's a, there's a, it's more than one of them. There's a group up there. And I mean, when I, first time I took Mantra up there too, uh, we found three different sizes of, of prints. And I'm talking not just one or two tracks. I'm talking hundreds of there tracks. There were so many prints up there that were so good and pristine that I just finally gave up taking pictures. I'm like, I've got like, you know, 30 pictures already, different prints. So I'm kind of running out of steam here, you know. Um, it was amazing, really amazing. We didn't have any casting material with us at the time, and it was mud, um, but like mud that had drained. So you, the, the detail was really, really good. And you could see that they're eating, you know, that they drain the lake down, that they're eating, the cra- so you see a lot of crawfish shells and stuff, mm-hmm. and you could see that they'd been eating, you know, there were signs of a lot of, like, frogs eating and and, and uh, crawfish and stuff like that, and so they were picking through there. And, and the thing is, is at that time of year, this, this I mean, this happened last year, too, so mm-hmm. um, we know we know they're up there. Yeah. Hey, so Kyle, this is an area I, that, yeah that has history of, of Bigfoot activity. I mean, and, and it's an area that you frequent. So that's, I, yep. I like, I, I like the, the way the story's coming. I mean, you, you weren't just up there. It wasn't a random activity. You, you were up there no, for a specific there. purpose. Right. Gunnar, if, if I may real quick, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think uh, as a segue, um, Kyle's has some, other background that that needs to be told and that is the relationship with uh, Bob Gimlin which goes way 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 back and also um, Kyle if you don't mind uh, you had mentioned that you had talked to Bob recently and he had mentioned that he was familiar with uh, a number of sightings up in that area uh, a family if you will but uh, yep. can you maybe give us a little bit of a your background going back to your rodeo days and 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 just how long you've known Bob Gimlin and uh, I think that's I think that's important to the story. Okay, well I've known Bob Gimlin for a long time. Um, Roger Patterson's brother, Les Patterson, was my rodeo trainer, and so I used to steer wrestle what they call bulldogging. I used to steer wrestle for the Pattersons over here in Pasco, Washington. And um, when I was a kid, and um, so I knew Bob, and um, me and Bob comes up to the cabin every now and then, and we talk and stuff, but he goes up there too, and he's very aware. In fact, last weekend, I was with Bob, and we're and I was showing him the pictures, and Bob was like, oh, yeah, those, those, those ones, we've been coming across those ones for years, and I go, oh, yeah, I said, you know, there's a small one you know that's about this size and then there's a medium one there's a bigger one and he and he knows he knows all about them too and he was he was um he we were talking about him you know kind of like there's a few individuals where he's been kind of watching them for quite a few years too there's a lot of history back there in that area there and that's why bob comes up and frequently goes up there too how old were you when you first met bob um i was about 20 about 20 very cool so and was, known each other a long time and, yep so that that's also a, another awesome piece to the puzzle is there's you know there's corroboration 
there's somebody else that that is aware of the area and and that happens to be you know one of the the, the godfathers of bigfooting but um but uh it it's it's building i mean i i look at this as it's building a case you know in this area you you've got got individuals and you've established that there's numerous uh different individuals that are in the area by by the the footprint record um what other kind of evidence have you guys gotten out of this area well not just that area but that er, that whole area quite a ways down even further away from there um, there's another area that we go to frequently that I snowmobiles and actually it's written in in a couple of books it's the Bethel Ridge area um, I've been up there a lot of times snowmobile and they have this little trail called Little Rattlesnake Trail and um, oh, about five years ago my youngest son <coughs> I'd, I'd uh, we'd go up there and go snowmobiling and so he has he has a snowboard and I'd tie a rope onto the back of the snowmobile and I'd pull him through the mountain and we'd just go up there and we'd go up and we'd go like one, two o'clock in the morning and go through those mountains. And uh we went through there one time and um it was beautiful. I mean no no wind, no snow or nothing. We were up there and we were kinda of playing all night and then we went back to the cabin and we got about four hours of sleep and we got up, went back to to the same trail and there had been no wind or nothing. And on that same trail, there was these large trees pushed over the snowmobile trail. And I'm not kidding you. I walked over to those trees to see, well, is it snowpack that brought them down? Or are the trees kind of rotten or something? And these trees were in great condition. And for some reason, after we left that night, I found three of them over my trail. I had to cut them to move them out of the way so we could continue snowmobiling that day. And, Did uh, you look I for for any, any footprints or anything around the trees at the time? There was footprints around the trees at those times. There was footprints around the trees, yes. And oh, but the weird thing, yeah, awesome. the, the, weird, the weird thing about it was those trees. I don't know how anything could have the, that much strength to push a tree like that. I mean, a bear couldn't do that. I mean, these trees. There was no rot in the way they were busted, and they weren't busted towards the bottom. I mean, they were busted at about uh, six, seven foot tall level is where the tree was pushed, and it looked like something just snapped it. I mean, I don't know what could do that. And like I said, we were only gone out of there maybe five hours, and we'd only been gone out of there five hours and come back to seeing these big trees just laying – I mean, out of all the places, there's no trees laying down anywhere else, but they're laying over this our snowmobile road, which the road is like 10 feet wide. Why would these trees be laid over our trail saying that basically, to me, it's like, we don't want you in here, you know? And it's pretty I mean, wild. It, yeah, it is pretty wild. That's uh, that's another good in, encounter story. I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh, yeah I, it's interesting because some of the, those behaviors, the the looking from behind a tree, using a tree as cover, and and trees being over trails and and roads and stuff in areas where people have gone through, and there seems to be no natural explanation for why why the tree would be across the road. I also have an appreciation for. It sounds like you, you don't go out in the woods and and everything is Bigfoot. 
that, you know. No. No, I'm, yeah. a, I'm, a, that, I'm an outdoor. I always tell everybody, you know, I said, I just go out there because I love to be outside, and I'd rather be outside doing things. And and if you see something, that's a plus. If you don't, not a big deal, but you're at least you're outside. And not everything is Bigfoot-related you know? at all. I mean, you're... You, it, it, there's a lot of trees that fall certain ways that look a certain way. There's a lot of things that happen out in the woods that, you know, people are going to say, oh, that looks yeah. like a Bigfoot did it. And unless you saw a Bigfoot do it, it probably didn't happen. <laughs> well, so I, think to... that's important. I think, I think yeah. it's important to note, and, and the kind of rule of thumb that Diane and I uh, practice is eliminate every other possibility. So, yep. And if, exactly. if if you know if it's if it's a weather phenomenon, you know snow buildup, ice, wind, whatever. Um, yep. If it's you know, it, you've got to eliminate every other possibility before you can even come close to the possibility that it's something else. And, right. and that's 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 kind of the the uh, no pun intended. That's kind of the mantra that we we. Uh, <laughs> But when you spend that much time out there and you know what things happen out there, when something like that does happen, it's the wow factor because that is unusual. You, yeah, you you've know. been out there your whole life. You know what snowfall does. You know what animals do, and you, like you said, you go through there and you you eliminate everything it could be, and then at the end, sometimes there's something that's just like this does not add up. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't add up. Right. I mean, unless there was some spontaneous weather event that, you know, came through and snapped trees in the in that precise area that fell them right. I mean, it, sometimes the alternate explanation seems more uh, fantastic than the fact that it could have been a Bigfoot. I mean, like some whirling, some, some swirling wind came in and ripped those trees down in the time that you guys were gone, and they just happened to fall uh, right across the road. Governor, honey, if I can add something to that, being from yes, back being from back east where you have a ton of tornado, little tornadoes, uh, downdrafts and microbursts, I've witnessed myself at trees being twisted off and broken off just from wind. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've seen it plenty of times. So when somebody says a Bigfoot twisted this tree off, the first thing that comes to my mind is weather. Yep, right. Yeah. Yeah. Diane's my, my favorite skeptic, and she keeps me in check, but... Uh, no, it's it's true, but I mean, when you find something that's isolated, um, where everything else in the area, you know, if you get into an area where there's other trees exactly like the trees that are affected, that for whatever reason, um, in the midst of these, uh, uh, say, a grove of trees, where you have uh, some sort of activity that has caused damage, uh, and just specifically, like Kyle saying, along the road, and I've seen it before. Um, you've got to ask yourself, why am I not seeing that in all the surrounding area? Yep. You know, um, why just on this road is there? And it wasn't just a, one little tree suddenly broken off and thrown across the trail. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. this wasn't just one. So there'd be one tree down, right? And they weren't all in the same area. So there'd be a tree down and then you go up a couple hundred more yards away, mm-hmm. which is quite a bit away. 
and there'd be another one down, and then you go up, you know, another what half a mile or whatever, and then there's another one down. But they're they're only horizontal across the road, so you can't get across the road, and there's no other trees laying down anywhere. So tell me what that's all about. That's for yeah. It, it, things that make you go, hmm. I mean, that's it. I mean, that, that's interesting. A lot of what uh, Bigfoot research is for me is it's we come up with exclusionary evidence. You know, we we can tell a lot of things that it's not, but uh, we can't necessarily say we we can't definitively say, oh, that was Bigfoot because, like Mantra said, if you didn't see Bigfoot do it, now. If there's cooperating yeah. evidence that may lead to a more, you know, a, a stronger picture or leaning that way, if you find footprints, if you find long hairs sticking on something, you know, then, yeah, then you put a single piece of evidence, interesting, you know, we've had weird stuff happen in the woods that, that I can't explain by any known animal, but in in our research area, and I'm like, yeah, I've had a lot of weird stuff happen, but none of it can I say, you know, is I can hundred percent attributed to Bigfoot. Just weird stuff. It goes in a yeah, you know, weird, weird audio and Yeah. That that is important because people wanna see what they want to believe is out there, which I understand, but as Vondra said, if you don't see something happening, you can't hundred percent attribute it to a Bigfoot. Right. Yeah, yeah, well, people go be out in- with confirmation, confirmation bias. They go out and expect yep. to to have something happen that is related, or they want it to happen, so they project that onto the, you know, onto the evidence. I'm sure there's a lot of things out there that we don't know. I mean, like you said, sure. we don't know what what does it. We just see we just see things and we put it together like a puzzle. And when when it comes up short and it just doesn't make sense, you're just kind of scratching your head and you're just you're like, hmm, you know. But like you said, you can't pinpoint what it is, but you just find it it's it's just find it interesting, fascinating, you know. You know, there was there were a couple incidents too. Um, when Kathy and I were going out, we had one area that we were focusing on for a while that we had done some call blasting and we were um, kind of kind of stationed out in the dark and waiting to see what happened and. And um, we were there for a few hours, and then we left, and we went back in the morning. And right where we were, there were a whole bunch of snapped, broken, big trees that weren't anywhere else in that area. It was just right there. So we don't know what that was. All we know is we pissed something off. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, didn't like us call blasting out there that night because there was no... um, there was no inclement weather that night or that morning. There was nothing. And those trees, the sap had barely even begun to warm out of them. I mean, it was just, they were really fresh and it just happened. We had the same thing happen up when we were doing some investigating up in the Tahoe area at this particular spot. Um, same thing. Next morning and there were trees right in the same area where we were that were huge. I mean, one of our, I remember it was gigantic. It was like like about as big around as a person and it was just wrench. Well, maybe not that big. It was probably about, what is that? Maybe about telephone pole size. Yeah. Maybe yeah. like a telephone pole size, but it was broken and twisted. And it's like, I don't even think you could do that unless you ran your car into it or something really. I mean, it was just, just amazing. I don't know of anything that has that kind of strength. I mean, unless it was way up high in the top of it and somehow 
broke it by his fault. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm no, I'm no scientist when it comes to that. But there's always strange stuff. And, and, yeah, I mean, basically everything is inconclusive unless you see that preacher actually doing it. So, it, it, it you know, your chances if you've got sort of DNA evidence like hair or something that you can actually collect and, and have run and, um, you know, then, the, of course, then it's like, okay, well, it's, the probability is a lot higher, but still it's, you know, we're, we can't prove anything basically. So. Yeah, there's, but it's building, when, when you're researching particular areas and, and those areas have a history of, of sightings, you know, uh, footprints and, and it, it leads credence to to at least staying in that area and, and collecting more evidence. Um, and then something happens, like you you happen to be out on a snowmobile looking for Bigfoot, and you get some pictures. I mean that that's like right. I said, it is. It, if you you hear me talk, I always I like to say you know we're looking for a needle in the haystack, but the needle's moving. I mean that's you know you're out there in the woods and you hope best we can do is go. Uh, shrink the haystack is is find an area that that has a history and and an ongoing history ongoing uh activity and and go back to that area as frequently and it sounds like you guys are out in this you know in your research areas as as much as anybody is probably out investigating bigfoot and yeah. and hope that you find you know the holy grail and like I said the Obviously, these pictures now. I'll, before before the show, I was talking to Todd, and he was telling me some some information about what they can do, the the technology that exists in regards to uh, what happens to a pic, what happens when you take a picture with your cell phone, and and how that can be. Todd, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, I spoke with uh, a good friend of mine and a fellow researcher, a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, John Cordell. He is a retired Portland police detective, and he's part of a small group of researchers, uh, to include uh, Peter Byrne, that we've been working with. And uh, when he saw these pictures, the first thing that came to his mind was uh, a gentleman he knows that um, is a criminal forensic expert what he had told us is that most snow phones, regardless of whether they say we, you know, it, it, it has a Carl Zeiss uh, lens or a Sony lens or whatever that can produce 1.2 megapixels or whatever. In reality, um, the software in the phones are uh, by default uh, designed to compress the photos uh, in such a way, uh, like kind of like a zip file, if you will, to compress the data in those pictures to where what you see on your camera when you go to look in your, in your photo gallery is a largely a compressed version of the photo. They, they, for instance, I think concept is that that if you take a picture of a kid at a birthday party, you don't need one, two megapixels. On the majority of the pictures we take, we don't need that kind of clarity. And they want to preserve um, storage space. So um, the software in most phones compress those files 
to where if uh, your viewers will look at a lot of the photos they've taken uh, with their cameras, regardless of what it says it's capable of, it might say it's, uh, you know, 98 kilobytes if you go to the properties of the picture, for instance. And it takes a forensic expert to be able to exploit and, and pull out that uh, that data to get it back to the original clarity and definition of, of that photo. So what John was suggesting, and actually Peter Byrne and John utilized this particular individual uh, who lives in Bend, Oregon, uh, on what they call the Og photo. There was a gentleman whose last name was Og who had um, a picture of what he swore up and down was a Bigfoot. And John, because of his police background, uh, was able to get this gentleman to um, turn his phone over for a short time to this forensic expert. Uh, and again, for instance, if somebody's accused of a crime, they, they, they'll come in and take their hard drives and their phones and everything and, and go through it all. Well, this is what this guy does. And it takes a person like this to actually um, pull out this uh, data to its original format where the pictures you see on your phones, and I think we, we all deal with this when we talk about quote-unquote blob squat photos. You know, somebody sees something, and with their naked eye, it's very clear, and then they take a picture of it, and it's just not as clear as their own vision. Well, fact of the matter is, with this kind of forensic technology, this data can be extracted from the phone and brought back to its original clarity which in many cases can be anywhere from 10 times to 100 times clearer uh, through this process. Um, it's not, you know, there's obviously uh, a cost involved, but I, I think your viewers, your listeners, excuse me, need to appreciate the fact that if they take a picture of something and it's not as clear as what they saw, that there is the capability within their phone and with through the offices of uh, uh, a forensic expert like this particular gentleman that it can be enhanced and brought back to that 1.2 megapixel clarity. Um, so I put Mantra in touch with one such individual and we're hoping that um, perhaps uh, she can arrange to get that uh, th that uh, data in those pictures uh, brought to uh, you know full clarity. That'd be awesome, because I, I, again, I, I had the opportunity to see them, but I was looking at them originally on, on a cell phone, so, it, you know, it's limited, a little, it's a small picture, and, I, and you know, it's like, holy, excuse my language, crap. I mean, that's, you, you're like, wow, you can really look, I mean, without without uh, getting any red pens out, I could see what looked like a face, you know, it's like, wow, those are pretty you there's a lot of crap on the, the internet as what people put out as you know uh as bigfoot pictures and and in my opinion looking at these pictures i mean they they are are way above what you usually see on on the internet for pictures of people purportedly taking the the idea and and people need to pick up on what Todd is saying is that if you have pictures that you think 
uh, you took on your phone and, and it, they should have been clear. There is a, a process that can can be done to those pictures to revert them back to to the, the original the quality of picture that that you would expect it to to have. So hopefully, I, I mean, if that's something you guys are looking at at taking advantage of, Kyle and Montre. Yeah. We've been yeah. talking about it. We I have to contact the guy. I haven't done it yet, but I need to contact him and see what the cost is and all that. So, but definitely want to explore them. Yeah, for sure. So, I think it's I think it's very interesting. Now, I only I only learned this maybe a week or two back, um, but um, my God, I, I think of all the blob squatches we've seen and people feel you know feeling it necessary to draw red lines around things and stuff. There's a lot of data out there already that can uh, potentially be rendered back to its original format. And the way John described it, it's like if you take a picture and you've got, you know, most pictures are done in red, green, blue hues. So when it goes to store it, it'll store all the reds and the blues and the greens in in a stack, if you will, uh, as data. And that's what you get to see when it comes out on your camera. Through a forensic expert, he can break those out and put those red, greens, and blues in their original context, in their original format, and you're not going to get the pixelization that you do on your phone. When you get a phone picture and then you try to zoom in on it, it's all screwed up. So it just makes me wonder how many pictures out there that may be very legitimate, but may not, you know, in its current format on your phone, be clear. It's, it, I just can't help but think how many of those pictures, if they were brought back to their original enhancement, that they, they may show a lot more than what we've been seeing. Just real quick, do you, is there a resource that, that you said you had that, that people could actually contact if they have pictures that, they they feel are worthy. Not that we want to swamp somebody with a bunch of blob squatches. Um, yeah, I'm gonna to have to pull it up on my phone here, but um, okay. And yeah, I know we'll, has we'll, it. We'll post we'll post the link at the underneath the episode so people can check it out. But go ahead, That's Yeah, I just wanted just a random thought here, but Todd, do you know if it's if they can also do that with like old footage, like the Patterson footage? Can it be frame by frame, or is it just like modern day type photography? As far as like you know, cell phones. They've actually, they've actually done that. I was at a, I wouldn't call it a conference, but a but a a meeting up in Olympia at a museum where Bob Gimlin was and uh, a few other folks and. I'm trying to remember the gentleman that was doing this work, but the the same kind of thing applied to the the, the Patterson-Gimlin film, which was the Chrome 2. And there is a process in which they can – it's actually laid down in the red-green-blue format. And hmm. so what they did as an experiment was try – they had some sort of technology where they were able to strip away each color level, if you will, and and uh, try to sit on on each of those color levels, and uh, some of the some of the stuff they were able to do with even the uh, 1967 Kodachrome 2, you know, we think well, if, you know, that's what it is back then, but uh, and there's not you, you can't add anything 
to what they had, but in fact, technology today is is uh, growing in leaps and bounds. And I remember seeing the red, uh, a version of the red, the green, and the blue layers of the Kodachrome 2, and each of them brought out certain certain details, certain artifacts that you wouldn't see in the the composite picture, if you will. Hmm, Interesting. Okay. We was going to have gone on for uh, two or three hours. This this is what I when I kind of show that I like when it feels like we're just sitting around the campfire talking about Bigfoot stuff. It's um, but you guys did go back and and do a, a follow up um, investigation of the area. You guys, what made you guys decide to leave when when you got a Bigfoot standing in front of you in front of a tree? That's what you are believe you're looking at. You know, it was just it was kind of a stare down basically. I mean, it was frozen. It was not moving, and we're just standing there, or not standing there, but we're on the on the snowmobile sitting there, and it's kind of like. Okay, now who's gonna make the first move? <laughs> who's gonna blink first? You know. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's the end of the day, and the sun's going down. I mean, it was at the very end of the day. We only had probably about well, another twenty minutes of light, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Something yeah. Like that. Well, that's there. So see, that's a good. Yeah. I I don't know if I want to be outweigh the Bigfoot in the dark. One thing I really wanted to ask you, Mantra, is. These photos you took, there appears to be different angles to it, um, or, or maybe diff- just different lighting. But it, uh, there are certain artifacts in the photos that, in the one I really like, uh, and what I was looking for, what Diane and I were looking for in the original, you know, the one we really like was there's this like red branch. Well, in one there's like a, a tree laying left to right at a 45 degree angle in mm-hmm. uh between you and the animal and then in another picture that tree's not even in there did you back up a little bit more did you i no. mean what would you account for the differentiation between the photos we pulled it so we had backed up and then when we were kind of like well what do we do now i guess I guess go. Were, I don't know. What we, you were getting so, angles, you were getting different angles at it. Yeah, I was getting different angles because we were going forward, back towards, back up and top. As we were leaving, we were just crawling, going forward. So I was snapping more pictures then. So that's why okay. there's some different things there. So well, because I, I was think thinking it might move, but it didn't. Well, let, let me just. Let me just say this, if I will. Diane and I, when we first saw these pictures, and knowing you as well as we do, and knowing how credible you are, it inspired us so much that we both looked at each other and said, we need to get up there. And uh, we we did so to the extent that we pool our money and uh, contacted an individual in Randall, which is kind of on the way up there, and uh, that was selling a snowmobile and a trailer. And we went up there on a whim that this this sled was in as good a shape as, as the, the gentleman uh, said it was. And we plopped down $3,400 of our money to to get up there and go in there with you. And, uh, it was, it was a great adventure. Um, it was, it was great to get with you. I was able to extrapolate the 
GPS coordinates from the uh, the, the actual picture. Um, a, a lot of people don't know if they've they got their GPS on and they take a photo somewhere that if you go to the properties in a photo, um, the the uh, the, the, the cell phone will actually give you the coordinates. And so based on that, when we saw where I was on Google Earth and plugged those coordinates in, and it showed us uh, generally where you guys were at when you had that sighting. And so when mm -hmm. we went out there, we, we uh, attempted, Diane had a GPS unit with her, and we attempted to get to that exact GPS coordinate and uh, we went back and forth with it and tried to lock onto it. We took some pictures. I don't know if we got the exact same spot, but anyway, um, I was so inspired, we were, that um, we we invested that money to come up there and, and join you folks. And uh, we're just grateful that you uh, welcome us to do that. So thank you for that. Well, we're we're just so happy you guys are are such good friends of ours, and that's very flattering, Todd and, and Kyle and I both. We really appreciate that. We really appreciate that a tremendous amount more than you'll ever know. I mean, you guys have have just volumes of experience too. That you know, I mean, when we team up and stuff, it's a great thing because we we're all on the same page. It's important when you're out doing research too that you're all you all have the same goal in mind, and it's it's you know just to gather evidence. Basically, we're not out there to. to if, if we had to do anything that could be regrettable, and and so you know, if it turned out to be a guy in a monkey suit, well, you know, nobody wants blood on their hands. <laughs> but uh, well, you know, I think um, a, lot of that was, a lot of that was based on on the conditions and whatnot. And there's, as we found out, you know, there's no way you could even walk around out there, especially uh, that time of year because the snow was so soft that uh, well. Kyle, how many times did you like sink in up to your hips? Remember, <laughs> I mean, remember the name. We both got yeah. stuck in that. Well, we actually, we actually got both of our sleds stuck at one point, and if it wasn't for Kyle, we'd still be up there. <laughs> Diane and I were looking pretty good, too. <sighs> well, guys, guys, we're we are we're just about out of time. I so the the result of the investigation uh, or Going back up there, I mean, you, obviously you couldn't get the location to to um, size comparisons, and do you have a pretty good idea? So you have the GPS uh, coordinates that that come up when you take the picture. So your plan is to go back up there when the the weather is more cooperative and conducive to look around the area at least, and and try to get a find that tree where the picture was taken. Yeah. And we did, I mean, we were looking at the coordinates and we stopped at three different places. I think it was at least three different places that the coordinates were coming up. But because of the snow melting and everything and things, you know, things move around out in the forest. Things don't just stay exactly the same in the forest. There's, right. there's a lot of things, that, there's a lot of things that go on in the forest. And, um, you know, we were in that general area. I mean, we were right there, so there was not. But it was like I said, everything was melted, and it looks different when when you have all that snow and then everything melts. Things look different. Yeah. So, but we right. were in the, the coordinates of those of those of that area. We were in the coordinates of that. But we'll be and back up there. Where certain branches might be in the picture because they may have uh, say snow 
uh, on them and uh, sure. making them drop further down. Uh, as the snow melts, those branches pop out of the picture. But our goal was to try to find that location just to eliminate the possibility that whatever was in the picture was A, either gone or B, was still there. And then hopefully we could be able to, uh, you know, just decide from that whether or not, you know, what it was they were seeing. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. We, we do intend to go back up there and, yep. uh, we can, we can do it with, you know, very shortly by uh motor vehicle and we'll be up there again. And, uh, again, I, uh, hats off to Colin Mantra for sharing that with us. And, uh, we look forward to working with them again in the future. Yeah. We're looking well, forward want, to it too. Great. So I want to thank you. Thank you all, Kyle and Mantra and Todd and Diane, for for joining me today here on Monstrous and, and uh, sharing. I always talk about cooperation versus competition, but I appreciate you guys jo- joining us today. And uh, let us know what happens with uh, you get back up there. Uh, again, where can people find the f- photographs? Do you have a website? We have a Facebook page um, right now. A website we haven't developed yet. But if they want to just check it out, they can go to Columbia Sasquatch on Facebook and uh, and take a look. Awesome. And Todd and Diane have the American Primate Conservancy. Todd and Diane, for people that want to find out more about the Conservancy and its goals and and support it if they'd like financially, where can they go to, to find out more information? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, we have the American Primate Conservancy, which is a nonprofit organization, that uh, is can be found at AmericanPrimate.org. Well, thanks, everybody. I'd like to also thank Todd and Diane Meese for joining us today. It's the quietest that I think I've ever been around Diane. And uh, uh, <laughs> 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 but, uh, at least Todd will take the, the smack for that. Uh, thanks, everybody, for, for being with us today on Monster X. We'll have a brand new show next week. And as like I said, go check out uh, Monster Exclusive on our website, www.monsterxradio.com. Until next week, have a great week. Advancements in technology, shifting markets, and the gig economy are changing the nature of work. 
With this in mind, Harvard Business School Executive Education is launching a new program on managing the future of work. Based on the latest research into the forces reshaping workforce demographics, this program is designed to help employers remain competitive by thinking strategically about today's evolving business landscape. Learn more at hbs.me/future. That's hbs.me/future.